you're back, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a new scientist and get to know a bit about what they do and why they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by evolutionary biologist, behavioral ecologist, and world-renowned spider lady, Dr. Mariella Herberstein. Hello, James. I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> so is my mother. Good. Yeah, she's following me on Twitter. And... Yeah, she'd follow you anywhere. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> I, I should have asked before we started, too, your, your public persona. Is it Marie? Is it Mariella? There's a lot of Maries out there, yes. James, but there's only one Mariella. Okay. That's me. So I think in terms of identity, it's easier as Mariella. Yes, fair enough. Well, we should. I should put in a full disclosure as part of this podcast because I did one with Greg Holwell a while ago. Who was? If he's my academic father, you're my academic mother, and and I am here kind of because of you and and your leadership and guidance. And I think you may be my seventh or eighth born. <laughs> <laughs> Are you keeping track still? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, um, Matt Bruce was was my firstborn. Yes, and then I think it was Greg Colwell as my right. second born, and then we have uh, Anne Gaskett as my third born, <laughs> and so on and so forth. And I think he could be seventh or eighth. Okay, well, maybe I should track down Matt Bruce and get him on the podcast. See if I can get the whole oh, collection. That's right, you've had, I've got Greg and Anne. You've got Chrissy painting. Got Chrissy. Well, it's. Obviously, I'm the grandmother, Chrissy, <laughs> academic grandmother, yeah. if, if, if Greg is, is my second born. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, the whole, the whole, it's a family affair. Absolutely. <laughs> but, I mean, one of the things you do as a scientist is form a good environment to work in. You put a lot of emphasis on the importance of the lab and lab cohesion itself. I mean, what, what makes a good lab to be in? I think a good lab is very important for mm. me personally, but I recognize there are other models out there where um, people just want to come in, they want to do their work and then go home again. And, and, and it's, it's not Im- as important, mm. that cohesion, that collegiality. I think there are tangible benefits of good lab culture, and that is collaboration within the group. And mm. we've had several instances that you also remember uh, of members of of the group getting together doing research together writing papers together and mm. these are you know these are outputs that are in addition to your you know, daily bread and mm. and they can be you know they can be a good paper for relatively little work because mm. multiple people are contributing so i think that's why I personally like a good atmosphere and mm. a collegiate atmosphere, and 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 then there's there's real outcomes from mm. working together. Even just, I mean, it doesn't come from having good scientists working together. Yeah. You actually need those people to get along yep. together, so they're happy to work together and yeah. collaborate. Oh, just just think about sharing equipment and space. Yeah. That's so much easier when people are actually able to collegiately talk to each other and, and you know, work around each other rather than feel that they have to protect equipment and space. Mm. So I think it takes a lot of stress away. How do you make that happen? I mean, cake's big thing. <laughs> cake, definitely. <laughs> sugar. <laughs> Add sugar to everything. Um, Look, I think I was particularly lucky when I started here at Macquarie that the first students that came with me were 
Matt and Greg and Anne, mm. and and together they, w you know, we created that atmosphere together. Mm. And I, when I look back, I, it could have been very different if I had a different group of people with me. Mm. Um, and you know, one is not particularly early on very selective, and mm. and probably doesn't um, select based on personality <laughs> that much. <laughs> Um, because you're inexperienced, you don't really know what you're looking for. So in that sense, personally, I was, I think, with that core group to start off a lab, that's what came about. And then mm. everyone else who joined, you know, either fitted in already or then started to work within that, that atmosphere. Mm. But if, if you're out there, if you're starting a lab and you're wondering who to which students to take or who to employ, um, maybe think about that aspect as well. I mm. didn't. I was just lucky. Mm. But you can be active about it. I mean, it's probably important simply because what we do is it's hard and it's stressful and, totally. and then it's you personal. Come, and then you come to an office where no one talks to you or, mm. or you know borrows the stuff off your desk and the noise, <laughs> the living bejesus out of you. All of that just detracts from your ability to do good science. Mm. And if you can get rid of that, that's, that's a bonus, that's a plus. Yeah, you do hear the sentiment a lot that you can't be picky with students. It's hard to attract good students, so when you find one, you grab them and you stick them in the lab no matter what. Would you agree, disagree? Can you afford to be picky? It's a good question, James. I think, I think early on there's a lot of pressure to build a group, mm. and um, and maybe you're less picky, and that may mean that as a supervisor or a lab leader, you have to spend more time in in making sure that the atmosphere works and mm. that um, you talk to the students that are behaving in a way that you don't want them to behave. Mm. So that's just more work for you as you go along and certainly in, in, in my group that had happened and mm. and some students hadn't fitted in that well to start off with mm. and needed more guidance and more support in, in fitting in. You can name names if you like, that's fine. Well, it's you, James. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm not in it anymore, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, you were a delight. Oh, thanks. On all oh, fronts, I wasn't James. fishing for that at all. <laughs> Um, but it's not insurmountable. Mm. It just means more work. Yeah. But in terms of being selective, looks sometimes the selection happens by itself. You know, mm. you, you chat with some students, and you express your persona, what's important to you, and if that's not important to to a student, students should be picky as well with mm. who they pick as their supervisor. Um, and ask the right questions about what kind of support they can they can expect. Um, I think a very important question that, that students have to figure out is publication, what the culture of publications is and authorship. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it comes to a big surprise that in some labs, less in biology, maybe more in medicine, there's an expectation that the whole raft of mm -hmm. people would be participating in the project and then everyone is co-authored, mm. and, and to figure that out is important to start off with. So students need to ask questions, and supervisors, you can be sort of, 
you know, passive in terms of not progressing things if you think <laughs> that's not quite, quite the way or, yeah. or suggest other avenues for that particular mm. student. I mean, I still remember maybe the first piece of advice you gave me as a student was mm -hmm. don't work with me because you like my research. Mm -hmm. You work with me because you think I'm a nice person. You know, when you didn't send me a list of your papers and mm. said, here's what I work on, you sent me your students' email addresses mm -hmm. and said, contact them, mm -hmm. ask them what the lab is yeah. like. I think that student-supervisor relationship is crucial. Mm. And I think, James, you know how taxing this PhD is and sort of midway you kind of run out of steam and and if if then the relationship is is taxing on top of that mm. it can just really break uh, a phd it can it can break a student so i that's why i think that relationship is most important mm. that that works the quality i mean it's tempting of course of course everyone wants everyone wants to work with a nobel prize winner <laughs> right yeah and that brings with it of course much excitement and mm. and probably resources and and what have you, but if you can't get on with them, mm. that's not, not going to help. So we should probably talk about your your lab and what it actually does. Oh, that's right. It's the Behavioral Ecology Research Group Lab Group. I should know that. <laughs> We're flexible <laughs> at Macquarie University. So when I joined, it was essentially the Spider Lab with a couple of uh, misbehaving kids working on praying mantises and that as well. I feel like now you're working on a whole range of invertebrates. What's, what's yes. going on currently? Well, you came with, with the orchid mantis as well. <laughs> um, so I think we moved into the praying mantids because of the obvious link in terms of sexual cannibalism between spiders and praying mantids and mm -hmm. it being a, a good comparative model. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm happy with any invertebrate. I draw the line <laughs> with vertebrates, as you know. I don't touch them. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Australia is just so mm. excellent with any invertebrate. So mm. why would you not pick something up? So we have uh, people working on harlequin bugs that are really, really colourful. Um, of course, you know, I can I can mix multiple taxa into one in the case of ant mimicking spiders. Mm -hmm. So you have the convenience of ants in the um, in the excellence of spiders. So <laughs> <laughs> why study them separately if you, if you can just <laughs> yes. pick an ant mimicking spider? We've got work, um, uh, people working on on moths, on morning colours in moths, mm -hmm. um, uh, damselflies color so the themes are either sort of mating systems or colors mm -hmm. and because i tend not to give out topics mm -hmm. because a, a phd is someone's topic you know you have you know yourself, it's, it's their passion project it becomes your life for you several have years to, you have to be convinced of that mm. and if i hand out a project there's two problems with it mm. number one i will because it's my idea, I will always look much closer <laughs> and go, oh, you shouldn't be doing it this way, you should be doing it that way. Sort of letting go mm. is difficult sometimes. And, and the, in a PhD, you have to let go. You have mm. to allow someone to do their thing the way they, they want to do it. Of course, with guidance and help and support. 
So that's why I don't like giving out topics. Mm -hmm. And the second one is, it's you have to live it for three or four years. If mm -hmm. you're not convinced from the beginning, if it's not your your project, mm -hmm. it's going to be hard maintaining that enthusiasm. Yeah, but your thing uh, has isn't has always been spiders. Yes, and one of the things you're particularly trying to champion is this idea of spiders as a model species. Yeah. It's a hard sell, James. <laughs> it's a hard sell. <laughs> well, what for people listening, what makes a model species? Yes. So well, I've written about this with some colleagues as well, and I've thought a lot about it because uh, you tend to get pushback when you work on, on species that are not immediately recognized as models. And the idea of a model species is the hypothetical idea is that it actually represents the average of species. Mm -hmm. um, the reality is a model species is just one that is really easy to keep in the lab and we know a lot about. Usually these are fruit flies, rats. Drosophila, rats, crickets, Arabidopsis in the plants. Mm -hmm. um, I think what they all have in common, they're incredibly boring <laughs> and <laughs> their natural history is not particularly exciting. Mm. But they're easy to keep in the lab. You can get many generations. It's, they can be very powerful for some questions, mm -hmm. but they're not averages. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Drosophila, does, Drosophila melanogaster does not generalize across the genus. So <laughs> melanogaster does something in behavior, does things that's quite different to say uh, simulants, Drosophila mm -hmm. simulants, let alone Drosophila being generalizable to, I don't know, other, other insects. Yeah. Um, so, but they're handy. Mm. They're very handy and I, you know, I don't hold it against people working on that. For me, they're too boring. <laughs> So you may pick up any animal. It is a model for what you want to do. There yeah. is, uh, I think there's no such thing as a model. I think there's yeah. just species that are very well studied and it can go into good detail. Yeah, so you're not suggesting we replace these model species with a new spider model species because it's a better model. No. You're using it as a way to suggest that we should be interested in these things because of their intrinsic value yeah. and That's what right, they do. Every species that you pick up will will do something different, mm. and that is of interest. As you said, spiders are going to be a hard sell. Yeah, hard sell. I mean, I'm sort of in the bubble, so it's hard for me to ask the direct question about what's so interesting about spiders. <laughs> but if you're out there talking to yes. people trying to not preach to the converted type of thing. What is it about spiders that is a good sort of... It's, what's a gateway drug for getting people into spiders? <laughs> Ant-mimicking spiders. Okay. <laughs> Tell us about ant-mimicking spiders. <laughs> so, look, spiders are interesting because of their ecosystem role. They are, mm -hmm. They're all predators. There's only one vegetarian spiders, spider. They can have significant effects on prey populations. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the ent everyone has an opinion about spiders. I don't think you need an entry drug. I mm. think spiders, most humans are opinionated about spiders. They find them either fascinating or abhorrent, mm -hmm. and that's your entry already. So mm. in that sense, in terms of the public interest, you're there already. In terms of the scientific interest, I think uh, spiders 
can test some of the assumptions in mating systems, for example, mm -hmm. because they have sort of a reverse uh, mating system compared to, say, vertebrates. Mm -hmm. We have a much larger female, a female that is often in control of copulation, copulation duration, sperm storage, um, that is quite different to a vertebrate system where sometimes females are not in control of, of who to mate and for how mm. long to mate. They may be able to control sperm storage or, uh, or fertilization. So y you can use that as a test of some of the assumptions in, in the reversed form. So th I think that is a, is a good selling point for spiders to people that, that are not naturally drawn to spiders. Mm. I mean, you wrote an entire book about the behavior of spiders with a bunch of other scientists, yes. obviously. Yes. <laughs> it probably surprises people that spiders have behavior. Not only that they have behavior, but their behavior is flexible. Mm. Uh, we like to think of, of invertebrates or spiders as little robots that have mm -hmm. a very strongly genetically determined set of behaviors and they to spill off that behavior in an automated fashion. But what we tried to highlight in that book, um, which is available for $29.99 <laughs> on Amazon. Well, what's it called? <laughs> it <Sp> is called... <laughs> it's on the shelf somewhere. The Behavior of Spiders, Versatility and Flexibility. All right. <laughs> so we want to highlight that, that the behavior is very versatile and also very flexible. So mm. spiders adjust the behavior depending on their situation, either intrinsic, because of their intrinsic context or an, an extrinsic context. Mm -hmm. So the classic would be web building behavior. Yeah. So you look at that marvelously geometric orb web and you go, surely that can only be constructed by a very strict sense of, of a strict um, control, genetic control. Mm -hmm. And indeed, when a little spiderling emerges, Soon after, it can build uh, a, an orb web. It does not need experience. But what, as it as the spider grows, what she does is she does learn, and she does modify the web as she goes along and optimize the web mm. based on learning, environment, and so on. And that's what we want to highlight. Mm. So, like the idea that that web is not just a pre-capture tool. It's 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 like a sensory organ. Yes. Almost. Yeah, so the, the, that concept of the extended phenotype, mm -hmm. the, 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 the structure uh, enables the spider to extend its body even further. It senses through the web, it senses prey, it senses predators, it senses mates, mm -hmm. it molts on the web, it mates on the web, it does everything on the web. Mm -hmm. And so I guess most people you know, that aren't in our little bubble think of spiders and they think of huntsmen or things in the backyard, things that are your run-of-the-mill little brine jobs. But of course, you're working on all sorts of I don't know, exceptions to the rule, let's call them, or, or unique things like these ant-mimicking yes. spiders. So these are spiders that look like ants. Remarkably like ants. It, it is often difficult at first glance to recognize them as spiders. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I guess it's a... It's a it's a spider, and it's almost like its body's been pinched at different points. So the, so the main difference between ants and spiders is that ants, like all insects, have three body parts, an abdomen, mm -hmm. the thorax, and the head, whereas spiders only have two body parts, the, the head and the thorax 
is kind of combined in, into the cephalothorax and then is the abdomen. So a, a, a spider mimicking ant, no, an um, ant mimicking spider, <laughs> so yes. far we have not discovered okay. a spider mimicking <laughs> ant. An ant mimicking spider has to bring that illusion of three body parts. Mm -hmm. And so what, what does happen is sort of a constriction of the body part to create this third mm. body part. Sometimes they even do it with their front legs, sort of their whole, oh, right. or their or front appendages, their ciliary, they hold that forward and they can have little enlargements that kind of then give the, gives the impression of a head. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they have to behaviorally hold those ciliary up. Mm -hmm. So why mm -hmm. are they mimicking ants? It's not immediately obvious. I, I'm not. I, I disagree. <laughs> I think why aren't we all mimicking ants? Because ants are fantastic. Yeah. Look, it, it's mostly um, interpreted as an anti-predator strategy. Ants are not um, not good prey. Mm -hmm. There's actually very few ant specialists because ants are weaponized. They have cilicerae. They have stings. They have um, spikes, uh, they have formic acid, they occur in, in large numbers, they defend in large numbers. So very few, most predators avoid ants, but for ant specialists. Mm -hmm. And so by looking even vaguely as an ant, a spider may have the advantage that a predator even delays an attack by enough time to escape. Mm -hmm. um, what, is, what is really fascinating is that amongst and mimics. Some are super mimics. They are just so good as mimics and others are pretty rubbish. Mm. And you go, well, how are you getting away with barely looking like an ant? Mm. How is a predator not fooled? Or how is a predator fooled by you? How, why is a predator not going, well, this is, this is really a spider? Mm -hmm. so, so we are interested in that variation mm. because theoretically, um, through selection, all the rubbish mimics should have been selected out, and only the best mimics should avoid predation. So is there, are there hypotheses as to why you can be imperfect? Yeah. yeah, there are many hypotheses, and that's, I think, part of the problem of the field is there are lots of hypotheses. They all haven't been tested simultaneously. Some people champion some. For some hypotheses, we have absolutely no evidence whatsoever. Mm. So there could be a constraint. So um, developmentally, um, uh, spiders may be unable to, because of that overall body structure, may be unable to resemble ants very closely. Mm -hmm. um, there may be trade-offs. Um, if you look like an ant and not like a spider, a mate may not recognize you. So then looking some like a hybrid, so retaining some of the important mate um, 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 important features that are important in mating are retained. Mm -hmm. um, there's ideas that some mimics mimic multiple different ants, so they kind of look like... They're hedging their bets that's right. a little bit, yeah. Or there's multiple predators that are, that are looking for different things, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore the mimic is sort of, again, spreading its, its strategy for multiple predators. So with spiders, there are, there are actually some spiders that specialize on ants. And so if this spider comes across another spider that mimics an ant, 
being recognized as a mimic may be important. Mm. And often they do it behaviorally. Mm -hmm. So they walk in that um, stop-go fashion of ants, but when an ant specialist comes along, then they change their behavior and walk more like a spider. And the ones that are really ant-like, are they ant-like enough to fool other ants? So, so that's a that's a big question. That's <laughs> often asked: is is the mimicry for other ants or mm. for the predators? And I think in most cases it's not for the other ants because ant vision is not particularly good, and ants more rely on smell mm-hmm. to recognize nestmates. But the, the, there are spiders that feed on ant larvae, and so they may use a combination of smell and um, visual. Um, mimicry to get past the, the soldiers to get to the end lobby. Alright, and so this is a big ongoing project. Yes, that's happening right mimicry. now. Yes, we have so a whole team of students working yes, on this. Yes, we have Jim and Michael both working on it. Mm-hmm. They travel Australia and pick up, look for ant mimics. They're quite good now and um, <laughs> Michael is looking at the phylogenetic aspect of it and Jim is looking at this, this, um, this variation in, in mimicry. Mm-hmm. And so you're overseeing this whole project. That's right. I'm anyway. sitting back in a in a comfortable chair <laughs> from a safe distance. Well, we started the podcast talking about your early research careers yeah. and how you get out there, and you've reached a point in your own career where uh, you're overseeing other people's research. Do you still get much chance to do research yourself? I try. Mm-hmm. I try, particularly in the summers, in the summer break, to actually mm. go out there and, and collect data. I, I was not successful this this summer, but mm. in previous breaks, look, that's a that's a quite a personal decision. Mm. But um, if you make the decision to maintain a full research program where you go out and collect data and and drive your own research in an academic career, that is very hard. Mm-hmm. That is very hard because there'll be other demands on you in terms of teaching, in terms of mm-hmm. of service at the university. Um, so some of my colleagues do that, mm-hmm. and and it, it's it's hard thing to do. But I I also think in enabling others, research is very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm, I'm you know I think it's too hard, but I I enjoy working with this, my students and because they also work on many different animals mm. so I can get to to uh, learn about damselflies and bugs and moths so I enjoyed it so I'm very comfortable in shifting the balance towards being more an enabler mm. than the direct doer so I'm very comfortable not everyone likes it <laughs> well for a I feel that way about teaching I mean there are lots of researchers out there that hate the idea they have to waste time on teaching I really enjoy teaching, and now that I'm doing research full time at a postdoc, I really miss it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think, yeah, I think teaching is great. Mm. I never feel that teaching eats into research. Mm. Um, I think it enriches research. And in terms of time management, teaching is actually one of those activities that you can really highly predict mm. because your your unit is scheduled, your lectures are scheduled, the pracs are scheduled. So you can really plan your year ahead. There's other things in a university life that come sideways that are that's unpredictable and that's usually more in the service side. Mm. That 
I think th those are the things that eat into research. Hmm. So if we were to give advice for mid-career scientists that might be worried about you know, things like admin and service taking over, mm -hmm. I, I get the impression that you actually really like Yes. Service and admin and... Yes, I think it's all about this empowering thing. So hmm. the service and admin, the way I do it is about uh, empowering others mm -hmm. and putting things in place that helps others in decision-making and bringing in others in, in the decision-making. But in terms of advice for mid-career academic, I, I think the realisation that you will be asked to provide service mm -hmm particularly as, as you're being promoted into levels, senior lecturer, associate professor, you have to expect that more will be asked of you and to be proactive. Mm -hmm. So rather than wait for someone to allocate you to, I don't know, the library committee, which <laughs> is where academics go to die, <laughs> you know, pick the committee, pick the portfolio that you like most. Mm -hmm. And then... If you have to spend time there, well, make the most of it. Do something with it. Hmm. Make things better rather yeah. than just sit there for hours in committee meetings. Actually do something about it and, hmm. and innovate, um, be creative, change things, make things for the better. Hmm. You have to do it anyway. Yeah. You as well do it well. I mean, you, you dived right in. You were head of department of biological oh. sciences for quite a few years. Three years, yeah. Yep. You're now chair of the Academic Senate Indeed. here at Macquarie University. Vice Chancellor next? What's what's the plan? You just revealed your secret plans. No, no. people are asking me this. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, look, I I I I think that I will continue beyond this job to contribute at at higher level at the university because I find it rewarding. Mm. Um, I'm equally as happy to return just to your normal teaching mm. research service. Um, but I think once you've shown capacity and interest in contributing, something will come along. Mm. I feel like academics, we can be a bit of a grumpy bunch of whingers in many ways and the culture and business of universities is one of those things we complain about a lot. Mm -hmm. Is this the answer then to stop whinging about it and actually get involved and make a difference with these sort of roles? I, I totally agree with you. I mm. think um, rather than being passive, um, get in there and change it. What doesn't work? Mm. Um, I was involved in changing promotion criteria, for example. Mm -hmm. For many people, the promotion criteria at Macquarie didn't work, didn't reflect what they were doing. So um, why not do that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the university would be very happy to have active people who constructively want to improve things. Mm -hmm. And if you care about research surely going in to change and improve the environment yes. where research occurs can only be a good thing. Absolutely. All right. So if that's your thing, <laughs> get, get into put, it. put your hand up and do something about it. <laughs> and speaking about being proactive and getting on top of things, it's a very busy time of year. It's grant season, it's field season, and it's coming up to a, a very big time commitment for you. Yes. It's Eurovision yes. time. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm anticipating half of April and all of May to be a complete wipeout with <laughs> Eurovision. We're going to Portugal, James. Yes. And um, and you know, it, if you want to do, if you do a job, do it well. So all entries will be reviewed. <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay, let's explain what we're talking about. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so as well as uh, looking after a research portfolio, you have the Behavioral Ecology Group has a Eurovision review blog on well, the Indeed. science of Eurovision. Indeed.wordpress.com. Well, go, tell us what happens on this website. So, um, I've been doing this since 2003, actually. <laughs> I've just... Wow, 15 years. Yes. <laughs> so, obviously, Australia is the biggest fan of Eurovision. Yes. And I'm the biggest fan of the biggest fan <laughs> of Eurovision. Eurovision is a phenomenon. It's a paradox. And I'd like to scientifically unravel this paradox. Mm -hmm. And what we do is, in a group, and of course, James, you are you part of that Alum uh, analytical alumni? group. Yes. yes, an alumnus. And we we go in, we review the um, the entries from the different countries that compete in, in Eurovision. We identify convergences mm -hmm. between entries. There's, of course, key change is one of the <laughs> common uh, convergences. The wind machines, mm -hmm. uh, wax chests. Mm. Uh, we've seen them all, all the yeah. traits. We've seen all the traits. Um, and we try and predict the winners based on on these traits. There's always the um, the alley effect, the the outsider, which I think what happened last year mm -hmm. in, in Portugal, an entry came along that was that was clearly outside the norm. And, and that it came from Portugal. I mean, number one, it came from Portugal. Donald Trump's president. Portugal's winning Eurovision. <laughs> yeah. This is a strange world. Yes, we yes. live in. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was it was it was not a standard Eurovision entry, mm -hmm. and it struck a chord with the audience, and it was voted for, and mm -hmm. it won. <laughs> so, when do we know when entries are? When do these reviews start? Yes, uh, I, I think we I think we'll be talking um, first two weeks of April. We'll get we'll get we'll dust mm -hmm. off the blog and start blogging again. Do we know if Australia is involved again this year? Australia is always involved. Keep Australia <laughs> out of Eurovision. <laughs> we had if you can. It was, it was Demi, Demi, Demi yes, last year. Last year, and she, she did really well. She came second. Mm -hmm. um, I, I haven't engaged, but many countries have already uh, decided on who they're sending. Mm, so okay. you can already find that out. All right. So... I'm, I'm pretty sure Australia is sending someone, and I should have prepared for this interview, of course. <laughs> should have known I was going to yeah. ask a Yes, yes. <laughs> so I have this. But it's more than the blog. It's also we, of course, run sweepstakes in the in the department. Um, there's, of course, my Eurovision party mm -hmm. and the Eurovision morning tea where in, in the department where we then, you know, show the winners and the loser. Mm -hmm. In a delicious morning tea with cake. <laughs> it all comes together. Yeah, look, we've come full circle at <laughs> the beginning about formulating a, a good workplace to do yes. research in. Yeah. And Eurovision's a very big part of that. Certainly. <laughs> I think you have to have fun. <laughs> do you think uh, evolutionary biology has given you a 
a vehicle to explore and understand Absolutely. Eurovision? Absolutely. I mm. think in the, in the trait identification, what makes a winner not, that's, that's an evolutionary problem. <laughs> I think it's, it is time we throw some serious numbers <laughs> at this and get some modeling. There was, a, there was a nature paper about Eurovision, about geopolitical block voting. Oh, yes. But I did analyze, and indeed there are patterns of the phone votes of mm. more that Europeans or some countries, the group of the Scandies, for example, mm-hmm. are more likely to vote for each other than for countries beyond their, their reach. Mm. I, I don't quite understand it. I'm a terrible uh, predictor of Eurovision <laughs> winners, I've learnt. I, I overestimate the value of novelty. <laughs> I think someone brings a marionette out on stage and I think that's their golden ticket. No. <laughs> there's one sure rule. The moment a piano accordion enters the stage, <laughs> they're out. <Okay. laughs> they cannot possibly win. In fact, it could be legal, actually. I have to read up on the rules. <laughs> All right, well, in a couple of months, keep an eye out for Eurovision stuff on the science of Eurovision.wordpress.com. I'm sure I'll get roped into yes. helping out with some reviews again. Well. <laughs> and if people want to find out about your other research interests, not Eurovision, they have a lab website. Indeed, I do. Which is at, <laughs> uh, I've got it here, behavioralecology.net, which is a brand new, freshly baked website. Freshly baked by Lizzie Lord. Yes. Who was on this podcast not long ago? Excellent. And you're on Twitter as well? Twitter, yes. Yes. I think I'm just at Marie Herberst. <laughs> you're actually at Marie Herberstai. There's an N missing. Because there's a character limit on names, and I think that's why. Yeah, I think I ran out of characters. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for oh, sitting down and James. having a chat. We will check in again later on once you've figured out why. Thank you. Thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. And thanks for listening. Check our site at insidu.science.com. We're at insidu.science on social media. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. AEON.net.au